Thanks for joining the Capital Church podcast channel. For more resources and to learn more about Capital Church, please visit our website at capitalchurch.co or send us an email at info at capitalchurch.co. Well, we love you, and uh, we're, we're excited that you made it here uh, today. Um, we're entering into our new message series, and we're going to take about four years to get through this. And uh, it's called Thoughts and Things. And so we're really excited to spend the next 10 weeks leading up to Easter. So we talk about how God changes us. This is going to be a really important sermon series for us, I think, as a community. It's going to help us to build for the kingdom of Jesus in our city and beyond. And uh, my hope is what I've been praying for is that God would radically change our church and how we think not only as a community, but how we think as individuals. And so uh, this is a, we'll, we'll call it a formative sermon series. I do believe it's going to shape the next decade of how we, how we think about church, how we think about ourselves, how we think about our neighbors, how we think about other people. So um, if you can make it uh, over the next 10 weeks, every Sunday, that would be um, amazing. We will be discussing everything from uh, the feels uh, we're going to be talking about true joy. We're going to be using, it's not my favorite word, but we're going to be talking about happiness, uh, how we can enter into the life that God has for us. We will be addressing depression. I don't know if you know this, but the number one public health issue in America today is suicide. Almost 50,000, we've mentioned this before, but almost 50,000 Americans took their life this last year. There are Christians that I've talked to, people even in the church. Everyone say the church who have um, experienced bouts of depression. So we'll be dealing with depression. We'll be talking about the spectrum of fear. Everyone's on the spectrum of fear. Some of you have extreme phobias. Uh, Others of you have maybe a low-grade anxiety or a low-grade fear. We're going to be addressing that. We're going to be talking about how God changes us through essential practices that transform how we think. So there's a lot of stuff that we're going to be discussing. Uh, Next week, I'm going to talk about some truth. I'm going to talk about some lies. And I'm going to talk about why being a Seattle Seahawks fan is diabolical. (laughs) My mother-in-law, she just rebuked, my mother-in-law just rebuked me. (laughs) Um, But uh, next week, we're going to be talking about cosmic warfare. In fact, the mind or the backdrop of the mind is uh, this cosmic warfare. So your, your, your mind, our mind, our cultural mind is under, under assault without being too dramatic. But those are things we're going to be fleshing out. If you want sources, I'll give you some sources. One great book by Dallas Willard is called Renovation of the Heart. I recommend uh, that as a read for you. It's a little bit philosophical, but I like philosophy. Um, it'd be, I think every Christian should read it. Uh, how many of you have been in the church for at least 10, 15 years? Okay, so over, about half of you. Um, there's a, a really good book, and I think it's called The Battlefield of the Mind. It's really practical by Joyce Meyer, and uh, I would recommend that. I know I, I think our interns have gone through that. I went through that a long, long, long time ago, but it's a really good book. Uh, I could recommend a lot of other books as well, but I won't do that um, at this time, but those are two good sources. Uh, if you take notes, you could write this really down. Uh, you could write this quickly. Um, uh, some scriptures that I'm going to be discussing, thinking through over the next 10 weeks or five years. We don't know. Uh, but one is Romans 1. If you want to get on top of, of transformation of the mind and thinking and all that kind of stuff and how God wants to change us, go to Romans 1. Read that this week. You could also go to Romans 12 uh, as well. Romans 12, 1 through, you could say 10-ish. It's a great um, start. Uh, also, Philippians chapter 2 is one of my favorites. Philippians 2, 1 through, let's say 10, uh, maybe 12. That would be a great uh, passage for you to read maybe this week, maybe the next several weeks. Uh, are you still with me? Uh, Colossians, you go to Colossians um, chapter 1. That's a great one. It talks about Jesus being the king of the cosmos, and uh, Paul relates that to our thinking and our mind. Uh, Colossians chapter 3 is one of my all-time favorites. Colossians 3 uh, you can read that one through um, whatever, right? One through whatever. Uh, go ahead and uh, do that. And there are a lot more passages I'll be recommending. So that's some sources and some stuff that you can um, 
uh, take advantage of. And then I think I'm going to write as well um, in parallel with this message series. I'm going to talk about how God changes our thinking. We'll talk about some science stuff and some philosophical stuff. So it'll be really, really, really good. Um, today, I'm just going to lay the groundwork, okay, before we get to the feels, before we talk about um, our minds or, excuse me, our um, um, really our th- meta thought world, we need to talk about how God personally uh, changes us. And that's kind of the essence of my message. So if you could turn to Romans chapter 1, uh, beginning in verse 18. Before I do that, before I read Romans 1, 18 through 23, I want to thank Shane Grove, uh, one of our teaching pastors who spoke uh, for me last week. How many of you were here last week? Okay, can you thank Shane for that wonderful message? I don't even know what this, this statement means, but I'm going to piggyback off of some of what Shane talked about. If you were here, he illustrated the tragic misuse of life. Uh, the essence of Shane's message was all about purpose. And uh, if you were here, I'm sure if you recollect, uh, he took an iPhone. How many of you have an iPhone, a smartphone, right? He took it, and uh, he used it as a hammer, right? It's a great illustration. Shane, you're brilliant. You should take that around the country. I was totally into that illustration. So he took his iPhone, it was broken, right? And uh, he used it as a hammer. And because I'm a carpenter, I know how to say this. Hammered a nail in a piece of wood and he broke his phone, right? And so I think we're like, ah, right? It's a great illustration on how uh, human, the human race, qua human race, the human race as human race, tragically misuses their life. We're like iPhones. Um, that uh, are used as hammers. Another tragic misuse of something uh, are, are lawnmowers used as um, vacuum cleaners, right? It's not a good use of a lawnmower. Another tragic misuse, my wife and I, a couple weeks ago, or it was about a month or two ago, we had a graffiti incident at our home, and uh, someone, we're still trying to get to the bottom of it. Uh, it, it could be my wife, I don't know, I'm trying to, I'm doing detective work. Uh, but we had a, uh, someone t- take a marker and uh, color over um, some sofas, couch, refrigerator. Large, dr- they drew large and startling characters. And um, we, we had to talk to um, four of my children. Three of my children, I'm kidding. Um, and uh, we're still trying to get to the bottom of it. But I think we will all say using, how many parents do we have here? Okay, all, I'm sure most of us have experienced this, but uh, the use of a marker to draw large and startling characters on a really nice sofa is a wrong use, right? So we talked about, as last week, Shane talked about the tragic misuse of our life, uh, but that presupposes uh, that there's something called meaning and purpose and design. Can I get an amen to that? Like you can't misuse anything if uh, we're all just a biological accident. If we're just a collocation of atoms, if we're just stardust, like some anti-theists claim we are, right? In the words of Richard Dawkins, we are one happy, miraculous accident. Well, I don't know if you could say happy and accident in the same sentence. Man, if we're accidental, then there is no meaning. Thus, if there's no meaning, we cannot talk about the misuse of anything. But we believe that everyone in this room is designed with purpose, designed for meaning, right? And we live for that. We might not consciously think about our purpose every moment of our waking day, but it is something that drives us as humans. It's, it's built into the fabric of our anthropology. That's a kind of fancy way of talking about we creatures, human creatures, have purpose. Uh, purpose, right? We can talk about uh, uh, Chick-fil-A. Chick-fil-A's purpose is making what? Good Christian chicken, right? Purpose is important, right? In and out. How many of you want in and out to finally come to Boise? You would ask, what is in and out's purpose? Its purpose is to make the best hamburgers, cheeseburgers, I might add, with extra cheese and raw onions with a little bit of ketchup and some tomato. And they make the best hamburgers in the entire cosmos. And if you agree, say amen to that. If you've ever been to Sonic, I've just had bad experiences there. So this is just my interpretation of Sonic. Every time you go to Sonic, Sonic's purpose is to give you food poisoning. Right? So we can't, I mean, come on, let's just be honest. You can't live without purpose. 
You can't do it. You can try, but it's, it's, it's a silly game. So we as humans, uh, human race, qua human race, tragically misuses uh, its, itself, tragically misuses purpose. And Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, tells us why. Here we have just a simple passage. It's not that dense. Paul is brilliant. He charges in verse 18. Again, he's going to ratchet it up a little bit um, as we go through this chapter. But he's going to get us to the point of, okay, why we as humans misuse or twist our life out of shape. And he begins in verse 18 by charging the human race with rebellion and arrogance. Everyone in this room has a problem with rebellion and arrogance. It's not just the president, or it's not just the Republicans, it's not just the Democrats, it's not just Bernie Sanders, it's not human rebellion and arrogance, in other words, it's not just something out there. That's easy. It's easy to abstract evil as it's in that party, it's in the angry vegan, or... Oh, <laughs> did I say that? But the line of good and evil runs through every stinking human heart. You can't, you, can't, you, you can't overcome depression, fear, anxiety, lust, greed, pride, if you don't hear me today. Paul charges the human race with rebellion and arrogance. This is what he says in verse 18. For the wrath of God, this is the anger of God, the wrath of God, the anger, anger of God is the shadow side of God's love. God is, God is good. Would you agree with that? God could not be good if he does not bring justice or put the world to rights, a world that has been disfigured by sin. God, because he is good, does get angry. If God did not get angry over how we graffiti our lives or how we disfigure or harm God's good, beautiful world or each other, God, by definition, could not be good. But God is good, and he appropriately meets out his anger. So Paul is talking about this. Again, he's giving us an analysis of what has gone wrong with the human mind and the human heart. So he says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. Ungodliness is a worship word. We'll talk about that over the next few weeks. And unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We all have a problem with suppression of truth. We'll talk more about this next week. Uh, but there's a conspiracy in every human mind and every human heart to suppress the isness of life, or what is reality. Verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Paul continues, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became what? Became futile in their thinking. As Shane mentioned, their, their thought, thought world, symbolic world, got twisted out of shape. Again, Shane talked about a little bit about that last week. And then their foolish hearts were darkened. The feels, how you feel, also got twisted out of shape or thrown out of joint. And we continue, I think we're in verse 22, right? We're verse 22. No, we skip down to verse 28. I think we're at verse 28-ish. Do we have verse 20? Yeah, perfect. So we'll skip down to verse 28. And since uh, the human race did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind or an unfit mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. This list is um, it's kind of a fancy word. It's kind of feels like anthropological wreckage. It's like, it's almost like, it's, and I think Shane mentioned, it's almost like you come to a crime scene in this list, and it's like ev the human race has turned into the walking dead. They've turned in on themselves. Um, their lives have been twisted out of shape, and they are full, as Paul continues, of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips. He continues, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, Disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Can anyone relate to some of this? Here, the, the one thing that we do when we go through this list, and, and please don't do this, we usually think of our neighbor, or we think of Ted Bundy and all the psychopaths in the world, right? Because maybe some of us have already made the intellectual move that, hey, 
Um, I don't struggle with all of that. That's not, that's not the point that Paul is making. The point that Paul is making is that if you have one of those, that is a sign that human corruption has taken over your mind and that you actually have an unfit mind. Verse 20, 32, we kind of come to this, this denouement in Paul's thinking. It's kind of the, the end of his thought. He says, though they know God's decree, and this is chilling in the words of one scholar, those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. So Paul here charges the human race with rebellion and um, arrogance. The first thing we, uh, we, we must understand, or at least recognize in this passage, is that you and I were made, we were created, we were designed to know God. Can I get an amen? To know him, to worship, to love, and to work with the creator to steward God's beautiful world. God, we find in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, shared the responsibility of ruling creation with Adam and Eve. It's Adam and Eve who then turned in on themselves. Martin Luther has this beautiful phrase, homo incurvatus, and say, humans curved in on themselves as the source of all evil. And Adam and Eve chose themselves over God and the earth and creation is then thrown into this radical dislocation. So we have in Paul's analysis of human corruption and arrogance this thought that the God-given ability to think. Everyone has a God-given ability to think. Turn to your neighbor and say, you're a thinker. All right, don't laugh. Do it again. Say, you're a thinker. Paul tells us the source of human rebellion, arrogance, how we tragically misuse our lives, is in the way we think. Our God-given ability to think has been taken over, in other words, for dark purposes. Death, uh, corruption, sin as a singular power, you find this in chapter 7, I will get into this, cast a long shadow over the human mind. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. Evil then is what you get when the mind is twisted out of shape. According to one scholar, the body, your habits, your choices, what you do in life just happens to go along. We need to think of the mind and the body in this kind of divine, um, not divine, but in this um, beautiful entanglement. They work together. The reason why we do things, though, and this is what Paul is making very clear in chapter 1, the reason why we choose to lie, the reason why we um, betray our neighbor, uh, the reason why we slander and gossip, the reason why we engage in behavior that is dehumanizing is not because we have a problem with behavior. I'll, I'll I've been in, I know I look 25, but I'm 42, and I've pastored for over 20 years. I've met with thousands of people. I've counseled them. And they all think that the problems they have in life, in their marriage, or their place of work, or in their thought life, or with their bodies, is simply a behavior problem. And I have to tell them it's not. You don't have a lust problem, if that's your issue here today. You don't have a pornography problem, if that's your issue here today. You don't have a fear problem, if that's your issue here today. You don't have a murder problem, I hope that's not your issue today. God bless you. You don't have an, an issue with habits, and those are important things, or choices. In fact, you actually have a problem with an unfit mind. You have a thinking problem. In fact, one scholar says, we live at the mercy of our thoughts. You don't live up, and this is, I believe, as a pastor, we don't live up or down to ideas or thoughts or beliefs. We simply live them. We live them. We live them. And so I, I and I've said this many times before, but as the lead pastor, my wife and I as the lead pastor of this beautiful church, we, we feel summoned by heaven not to modify your behavior. Now there's some things I'm going to talk about when it comes to behavior, right? You shouldn't be a Seattle Seahawks fan. Right? Like there's some things I think are just bad for you, right? And so certainly I'll talk about those things, but my, my call, 
my wife and I's call to pastor and to serve you guys and to build for the kingdom of God in the Treasure Valley and beyond is not rooted in us trying to modify your habits and your choices. We'll talk about those things. But our biggest call is to change and to correct how you think. In fact, I think my, my goal every single Sunday is not to give you new information. It's simply to try to convince you that what you believe is actually true. So belief is important. How we think is important. In fact, how we see the world, how we see ourselves, how we see um, God, how we see our neighbor, our thoughts, our beliefs, our symbolic world, ultimately, not your behavior, is what defines you. Not only does it define you, but your thoughts and your symbolic world and your beliefs and what you think about every single day, even if it's in the level of the subconscious, even if it's in the subterranean world of your mind, gives shape to how you live your life. You see, if you want a healthy marriage, I can give you 10 practical ways to communicate to your spouse. But if your thinking is distorted, you don't got a hope or prayer. In your marriage, and all the men said amen to that. And the women said amen to that as well. Right? We don't have a problem first of behavior. We have a problem with our thinking. I'm going to talk about this uh, next week, but every act, every dehumanizing act, or the ways in which we tragically misuse our lives contains an incorrect picture of God himself. You lust because you believe that the only road to happiness goes through lust. You don't believe that God loves you, and you fundamentally do not believe that God is good enough for you. You don't have a lust problem. You have a problem with God. You don't have a gossip problem, a greed problem, a pride problem, a problem with your neighbor, per se. Ultimately, you have a problem with the radical goodness of God. I, I wasn't planning on saying this, but there was, man, I think it might have been in the middle part of the 20th century. It could have been before uh, there was a, a person who came up with, and it's become so cliche that uh, we don't use it as much anymore, but... Uh, this author coined the phrase, your God is too small. There have been a lot of different iterations of that book. But in this book, um, people misunderstood what the author was trying to say. They, they took your God is too small, placed it within a therapeutic worldview, and they started preaching the message, your God is too small. He's bigger so he can meet your needs. In fact, that wasn't the message. The message of your God is too small is the reason why you're bored, the reason why you have a problem with giving, the reason why you can't, you're not uh, in a state of awe when you come on a Sunday morning and worship him, or the reason why you're not living up to the beautiful purpose that God has for you is because, yes, your God, not the real God, your God is too small. Some of you, you don't even understand worship, and, and I'm placing no judgment here, but you don't understand worship or giving your life or just spending time in God's presence because your God, by definition, is not great. He's kind of okay. In fact, we kind of use him as a therapeutic counselor. We get something on Sunday, and then we kind of live our lives. But your God is, if we understood how great, how good, how amazing, how awesome, how remarkable God really is. If we actually bumped up against naked reality, God's goodness, we would all be flipping out. Or with my street friends, we all be tripping You would be tripping every single day if you truly understood how God is. So my task in the next 10 weeks, I'm going to give you practical stuff, but it's first not to give you a technique. Unfortunately, because many of our thinking, 
when it comes to God is so turned um, uh, right or, or upside down that if I was to give you a technique, you would use it against your spouse or your kids. Like give me a technique to make my marriage the best. No, you first need to get a right thinking. You need, you need correct information about who God is. And then we can give you some practical advice when it comes to interacting with your spouse or interacting with your kids. I just think if we don't have the right thinking about life, about who we are, our symbolic world is unfit, guess what happens? We start using techniques to get what we want out of people. And I don't want that for you. I want us to think correctly. Are you with me? I hope this isn't depressing. I love this stuff, right? Some of you are like, no, I don't really like this stuff. All right. Hosea 4, 6 says, my people are destroyed for lack of behavior or wrong behavior. No, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Isaiah chapter 1, here we have uh, God charging his people with rebellion against him. And Isaiah poetically um, puts into the words of God and says, the ox knows its owner, the donkey knows its master, but my people do not know me or understand me. It's not enough in the words of one author. It's not enough that we behave better. We must come to see reality different. It's funny, I was, um, I think it was last night, I was going through a lot of different articles and I came across this kind of a pop culture thing. Uh, and maybe some of you heard it, I'm not going to give names. It was a bad relationship, there's some infidelity. And uh, this girl who was caught up into this, this bad relationship, she, she was... Um, she took full responsibility. She was being interviewed, and this is what she said about this, this bad relationship. She goes, you know, to be honest, when I went to this particular place, and she was, she's, I don't think she's a Christian, but she was talking like a Christian. She goes, I wasn't, at least she was talking like Paul. I wasn't, I wasn't thinking I shouldn't be here. And that's the first step where I went wrong. I sat there and I'm like, oh my gosh, she's absolutely right. I got to tell my kids, my beautiful, wonderful, mostly obedient children. And if you're a parent, you say this all the time. Guys, you have to think before you act. That's tough, right? So when it comes to thinking, some of you are, maybe you're a little bit nervous. You're like, oh, so Chris... I mean, does that mean I have to become a historian? Do I have to become an academic? Do I have to, like, get my mind around Koine Greek? Do I have to think like you, or do I have to become a philosopher? No, that's not what we're thinking. What I am coming up against, can I be really honest with you? And over the next 10 weeks, we're going to be talking about this, but there's an assumption in the world of church, it's in, it's, it's in the Western world, that the more spiritual you are, the less you have to think. In fact... I think that's the opposite. The more spiritual you are, the more thinking you will do. And I'm just going to say this. This is like a declaration over our church. Um, but we are going to be a spirit church. We're going to be led by the spirit. We're going to walk in the spirit. We're going to see the fruit of the Spirit over the next 10 years of being the church and as we build for the kingdom. God is going to do great things in our life. We're going to see miracles. Can I get an amen? We believe that the gifts are for today. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So we are most definitely a Spirit-led church. Can I get an amen? But we are not a, you love that one. You're not going to like this next one. But we're not a go-with-the-flow kind of church. Let's figure out what the people like. Let's just kind of go with our feels. I don't know if you know much about your feels. Most of the time, your feels go in the opposite direction of the objective facts of what Jesus says over you. So we're not a go-with-the-flow church. We're go-with-the-spirit church. Why are we saying this? Because... It's funny how we've bifurcated the Christian life. You have spirit churches who don't think, and then you got thinking churches who don't allow the Holy Spirit to work in them. Why is it, and I think it's, it's demonic, 
Why is it that we've separated thinking from the Spirit? Stop it. It's not what God has called us to be. We will be a Spirit-led church, and gosh darn it, we're going to be a thinking church. The problem with this world is a problem of wrong thinking. So I will challenge how you think. I will challenge your ideas. I will challenge the lies that have been spoken over you. I said this first service, I'm going to say it again. Um, you might not like this, but everyone in this room have at least five lies that you're building some of your identity around. There is not one person in this room that is exempt from lies and dishonesty. We all have it. Over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about how Jesus coined the phrase that hasatan, right? The Satan is the what? The father of lies. He's a pathological liar, and we, we come up against the father of lies by thinking correctly about God's truth. So we're going to be a spirit church. We're going to be a thinking church. We're going to be a truth church. We're not going to bifurcate that. We're not going to separate that. We're going to walk by the spirit, and we're going to allow the spirit to affect our thinking. And I guarantee you, we're going to grow as a ministry, and we're going to serve this city, and we are going to reach people, not just in the Treasure Valley, but we're going to reach people um, beyond our scope of influence Right now, not because it's all about us, because it's certainly not about us. It's all about what God wants to do through us. So why is thinking so important? Uh, why do we have a sermon series on thoughts and things? Well, we all know this. Thoughts have tremendous depth and texture. Shane mentioned this last week. Psalm 139, the poet, after searching out the goodness and the power of God, exclaims, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. What he's not saying is I'm a, I'm a dumb-dumb, not saying that. He's not saying that I'm not a, a thinking thing. What he's saying is I explored the depths and wow, God is deep. Our brain, in other, word, in, in other words, and every neuropsychologist will tell you this, is designed for complex thinking. Your brain is elegant. We are created for depth, not the shallows. For example, the words of one scholar, we can bring before our mind, we can present to our thoughts what is not the case, but could be. For example, I've done this before, everyone has done this, um, but I've imagined myself in a very difficult time being a professional tennis player. I don't know why, but I remember I was going through a really rough day, and I just imagined what it would be like to be on tour as a tennis player, right? I've imagined, you, you all know my greatest, I don't know what you call it, consternation in life is uh, I'm only 5'11 and 3 quarters. Shane's 5'9. Um, anyways, I'm kidding. He's 5'10 and something and change, 5'11. We're about the same height. Um, but I, I can imagine being 6'8 with a 7'0 wingspan, which would be amazing, right? I can imagine, it's just because our brains are designed for elegance and complexity. I can imagine being 25 years young. I can imagine my son, my stud quarterback son, starting for the Dallas Cowboys, which would be amazing, right? We can imagine things. We can think about thinking. We can imagine what could be but is not the case. We also can imagine what ought to be, though it is not, or what should, in the words of one scholar, never be. This is all essential for planning for the future. God has designed our brains for complex thought. Now, some of you are thinking that I'm not a thinker. Like, some of you have bought into the myth that thinking is exhausting. How many of you are like, yes, right? You have the thinking man, and every time you think about thinking, you get exhausted. Well, the problem with that, in the words of, of one neuroscientist, you think every 10 seconds. You're always thinking. If you get exhausted with thinking, you're probably thinking about the wrong thing. But thinking is not, by definition, exhausting. We are more than thinking things. We are psychosocial, political creatures. I understand that. We are made in the image of God, and God has called us to do great things in our world, not for our sake, but for the sake of the people. Um, but we are 
thinkers. Proverbs 23, 7 says, A man thinks in his heart, so is he. So thoughts have mighty causal power, right? Your thoughts, in other words, hence thoughts and things, can turn into beautiful things or monstrous things. Your thoughts can shape a destiny, and you don't even know it. Ideas that form your story or your identity or your self-talk can shape your habits, your, your actions, your behavior. So to wither the tree of ungodliness, you have to cut the root of an unfit mind, and you have to allow the Holy Spirit to come by spirit and truth to set you free. The mind is so powerful that it can turn truth and make God's truth um, into an unreality. Your mind can also take what's unreal about you and make it true. And some of you are in that situation today. Some of you believe that the only way into happiness is through lust. Some of you believe that the only way into happiness is you got to get rid of your spouse, like divorce them. Okay, anyways, I just want to make sure that it's clarified. Um, our, our, our world's weird, guys. Okay. We talked about some murder stuff last night. That's in my head. Anyways, let's move on. Guys, I really like my preaching. I think it's pretty good preaching. I think it's good. I like it. But we can take worry and fear and we can so exaggerate it that it actually takes on godlike characteristics. What we need in our world is truth, and we'll talk more about that next week. So what's the answer? Hopefully you're not depressed. Um, I brought you to the brink, and now we're going to bring you back. So what's the answer? Well, Paul gives us the answer to an unfit mind. He gives us the starting point for how God transforms our thoughts. I, we could say he gives us the blueprint for tackling everything from fear to lust to infidelity to melancholy to the blues to depression to your feels, even to becoming a Seahawk fan. Okay, I'm going to say it and say it and say it. The starting point is that Jesus, through his death and resurrection, has won the victory over your mind, which before Jesus was under the long shadow of death and corruption. And so Paul says in Romans 6, verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Verse 3, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized, and when we say baptized, the word baptized comes from the Greek word baptizo. It means to be fully immersed, submerged into the life of Jesus. If you've been baptized into Christ Jesus through faith, repentance, and the waters of baptism, you were baptized into his death. Verse 4, Paul is dealing with truth and identity in the story of Jesus here. He goes, hey, this is, this is you need to know this. This is what Jesus has objectively done for you if you are in Christ. He then changes the metaphor a little bit. It's a little bit dense. I'll try to unpack it really quick. Verse 4, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. What he's saying is that in baptism, you are buried. I love the metaphor. You are buried into the death and life of Jesus. What Paul imagines is that you and I are like a tree or a shrub in bad soil, and it's through Jesus that we're relocated or retransplanted, if that's a word, into fresh, healthy soil. You are buried, if you are in Christ, you are buried in his death, in his life. Verse 5, for if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. His. So what Paul is saying, hey guys, and this applies to how you think and the choices that you make. This applies to depression. This, if we don't get this, we can't tackle depression. 
If we don't understand what Paul is saying here, we can't tackle fear, anxiety, lust, greed, nostalgia, things that turn our life upside down. And what Paul is saying is that if you are in King Jesus, your status has been radically changed. In other words, you don't have to feel it, but you're no longer located in sin. Now, it might you, you might feel like you're a good sinner, but if you are in Christ, you're no longer located in it. You're no longer, in other words, located in your addictions, your pornography addictions, your addictions with um, drugs, things that you would uh, use to abuse your body, whatever it might be. Because you're in King Jesus, you're no longer located in sin, addictions, lies, death, corruption, the old world, anything like that. You are buried into the death and life of Jesus. Now let me just say this really quick. I would read this passage, I'm like buried, death, and I just get pretty frustrated, right? Is Paul saying that God's going to annihilate us? That somehow we lose our personality when we follow Jesus? That's not it at all. In fact, what Paul is saying is that when you're in King Jesus, you're now relocated under his grace and his reign, now track with me, and the age that is characterized by rebellion and despair and hopelessness no longer applies to you. So your true self finally comes to the surface. You can finally be the personality that God has always designed you to be. Can I get an amen to that? So why does this happen? How can we be baptized into King Jesus, buried into King Jesus? As I close, we've talked about this often, but I think it's important for us to understand this. Jesus is our king And because he's our king, he represents us. And because he represents us, our life then is bound up in the life of Jesus. The words of N.T. Wright, he says, because Jesus is our king and he represents us. What is true of Jesus is also true of us. He died to rebellion and corruption And because of his achievement, and because of his victory over the powers, and over sin, and over everything that destroys us, we share in that victory. It's pretty good stuff. So what is true of Jesus is also true of us. Jesus sums up his people. Now I use this all the time, but... Um, this, this might sound bizarre to some of you, but it really isn't. I know we have a lot of sports fans here, a lot of Cowboy fans here. And in a weird way, when it comes to the psychology of fandom, it's funny how we, like all of our hopes and fears are summed up in our team. So it's weird how this happens. I don't know why this happens, but if our team wins that week, we're like, man, we're, everything is victory. Right? We can handle anything. We're full of joy. But when our team loses, which if you're a Cowboy fan, it happens all the time, right? You're like, you, you feel like a loser, right? In a way, sports fans project this idea of representation onto their teams. This is exactly what Paul is saying. Because you are in Jesus, something objective has happened to your status. You are now a son and daughter of the king. You are now a part of the family. Well, Chris, I don't feel a part of the family. It doesn't matter what you feel like. This is what God says about you. Well, I don't know if I can handle my marriage and figure out my spouse. Don't worry about that. I don't know if we can have a successful, fulfilling marriage or family, or I don't know if I can do all that God has called me to do. Don't worry about that because you are in King Jesus. What is true of him, man, is true of you. So Paul says it's probably not going to feel like this. This is why he goes on and on and on. Verse 6, he continues. We know as we end, our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. He continues in verse 7. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Verse 8. Yes, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Verse 9, 
We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. So Paul's kind of saying the same thing over and over. Verse 10, for the death he died, he died to sin once and for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. And finally we come to verse 11. He kind of like stops a little bit and he says this. So you also must, everyone say consider. You must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Uh, other translations say you got to reckon yourself dead to sin and alive. Um, this word, essentially you could translate it into English as calculate. You have to calculate. It's a math word, right? It's kind of one of those frustrating words. It's like it's, it's an accounting term. In other words, what Paul is saying is you, just like an accountant would take, in the words of one scholar, uh, a look at the books and we'll look at the profits and the losses and we'll do the sums and we'll do all that kind of stuff and think through um, what had transpired or transacted that day. So we must calculate who we are or think. Everyone say think. We must think about who we already are in Christ Jesus. In other words, what Paul is saying, hey, it's not going to feel like it on some days that you're a new creation. It's not going to feel like it that you're not located in your addiction. There are some days you're going to feel like you're not going to make it. Some days you feel like you're not going to be able to do all that God has called you to do or to be. But Paul says, don't live by your feelings. I want you to think straight about who you already are in King Jesus. God loves you with an everlasting love. God has already won the victory for you in your place. Jesus became sin that we might become the righteousness of God himself. It is God who worked through his son Jesus and defeated addiction and fear and lust and greed and slander and gossip and murder and anger and all those things that deform our lives. If we don't do this every stinking day, there's no way we can experience all that God has for us. You got to think through this because thinking, as we talk about this over the next few weeks, is under assault. There's a cosmic warfare that's centered around how we think. It's imperative that we learn to think straight about who we are in Christ Jesus. So how can we do this? Can I just give you a practice as we close? Is that all right? Okay, two people want this, that's all right. I know you're quiet because you're thinking about this, but I, I, I want you to hear me. Practice this week, it's pretty simple. I've done this with our interns, I've done this personally, I've done this with our staff. I, I recommend take a piece of paper and this is how we can calculate. This is how we can start the process of thinking right and allow God to transform our thinking. Once you take a piece of paper, uh, something like this, can't read my writing, I have horrible writing, but I want you to draw two columns. On the left column, is it okay we just get really practical? Okay. On the left column, I want you to name and identify four or five toxic thoughts that you've been thinking about. I don't want you to force it. I don't believe in Christian navel-gazing, right? We're just obsessed over ourselves, our soul. But I, I want you to pray, ask the Holy Spirit, okay, Holy Spirit, what am I thinking about that's off, toxic? I want you to write it down. It's funny, when you start to write down something that you've been struggling with, just the, just the act of writing something down or confessing something actually weakens its power. It's going to happen. You're going to, maybe some of you in this room, you're struggling with an addiction to pornography. You're saying, this is what I recommend this week. You take, okay, God, this has been a struggle in my life. You name it. I promise you, as you, this is between you and God, as you start to write it out, its power is going to, come on, its hold or its ability to shape your life is going to be weakened. And then this is what you do in the right-hand column. You write down every promise that you can find in Scripture that counteracts the toxic thought 
in the left column. So if your struggle is with purity, you just go to Romans 6 and yeah, 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 I get it. I just wrote down that I struggle with this, this, and this. But this is what God's word says over me. That I am what? A new creation. You go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. All things are new. You tell yourself as you write down scripture that I am a new son and a new daughter and my life is buried within King Jesus. I have his life. I have his victory. I have his hope. I have his power. I have his strength. You do that, you will find victory in your life. Well, Chris, isn't this just like um, the power of positive thinking? It's actually not. I don't know if you know this, but all truth is God's truth. Right? And power of positive thinking is a half-truth. It's kind of a cheap parody or imitation of what we're talking about right now. But just because, man, how many of you love breakfast? I love breakfast. I get this from one scholar. But... We love breakfast, but just because a, a thinker who advocates for the power of positive thinking also eats breakfast, does that mean we should no longer eat breakfast? How many of you think that breakfast, in other words, breakfast is a good idea? So just because people that we don't agree with still do what we do, does that mean it's not God's truth? No. So I'm going to eat breakfast morning, noon, and night. And all the people who love breakfast said amen to that. The same, and that just simply illustrates how many people are like, well, there are a lot of weird stuff about the power of positive thinking, so I'm not going to think. No, we don't believe that. We do believe that our thoughts have texture and depth. We're designed for purpose, and God wants us to think straight about who he is. So this week, we're going to start the process of God changing our lives by writing down, this is my fear or this is my issue. And then we go to scripture where we write down, well, this is the promise that God has spoken over me. This is what God says over me. And I guarantee that God will begin the process of not just changing you, but if you're open to this, God's gonna change your marriage. God's gonna begin to change your kids. Here's the problem, your kids are not your problem. You are your problem. Some of you need to hear this. Your spouse is not your problem. You are your own problem. You taught us, you Thomas, right? All respected differences considered. There are some things, yes, we need to address, but ultimately when it comes down to it, we are our own problem. Open your heart to the Holy Spirit. God will change you at your place of work. God will change your your boss. God will change your neighborhood. Let's allow the Holy Spirit to correct the information in our thoughts. And everyone, give Jesus a hand this morning.